My guest today is Gabriel Halpern, who is an Iyengar teacher based out of Chicago, Illinois. I met Gabriel a few years ago when I took a series of his workshops here in NYC at a Kula Yoga Project in Williamsburg. And he came to do a series of therapeutic workshops on focusing on different regions of the anatomy, which were incredibly illuminating. But really what stuck with me was Gabriel's deep knowledge of the philosophical side of the practice. I found his Dharma talks especially to be just incredibly insightful and inspirational. And I felt almost immediately like this guy was the real deal. And this is definitely the kind of teacher that I really look to evolve myself towards in my, in my own teaching practice. In this interview, we spoke about a lot of really interesting topics. Uh, Gabriel shared his experiences with his beloved teacher, the late BKS Iyengar. He also talked about the story of his practice, which started way back in the 70s. He's been practicing and teaching for many, many years. He also spoke extensively on what he sees as the need for a return to cultivating a place for the ritual elder in our society, which I think is just a really important topic that uh, I'm so glad Gabriel is, uh, is open to talk about. Gabriel also touched on a lot of other interesting topics, so I hope you really enjoy this interview as much as I did. So without any further ado, friends, here is Gabriel Halpern. Hello, Gabriel. Thanks so much for joining us. Jacob, it's a pleasure to go through this with you. So I, this is a really special interview for me because uh, when you came to New York, uh, it's about been about two years ago now that you visited at least the, the, the series of workshops that I attended. And uh, those workshops really uh, affected me in a, in a really kind of transformative way. I, I found your workshops to be really illuminating, not only at the level of asana, but also uh, from a philosophical standpoint, I really connected with you in your Dharma talks. And I felt like, um, uh, in general, I, I tend to hear a Dharma talk and, and sometimes I get a little cynical. And there was a, there was a level of, of kind of rigor and, and critical thinking that I felt really um, set you apart from a lot of other teachers. So I'm wondering kind of if you would maybe want to talk a little bit about how your uh, teaching evolved to that place. Well, thank you very much for acknowledging whatever you got from me. I spent 20 years, over 20 years at the university level in DePaul teaching theater, but teaching yoga for theater students. So certainly it helped spruce up my own cross-cultural academic background uh, and probably made my ability to speak in front of people more smooth and articulate than it had been uh, in my earlier life. Mm. Well, it's hard to say how I got specifically certain to, to, to where I am. Certainly the people who were our mentors for me in terms of prolific creativity in their life and also the ability to hold court in terms of fascinating subject material and recognizing a certain kind of planetary significance to the things that we say so that their topics, whether it was Carl Jung in psychology or Joseph Campbell in mythology or Alan Watts in his Western exposition on Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Tantra. Yeah, I love, yeah, I love or, Alan Watts. Or Ram Das, right, as another fantastic Western person who went from psychedelics to, to the journey in the East and helped mentor so many people in my generation. Each one of those people had a really good grasp on how to use language and concepts to explain things that seem esoteric in one way but have such fantastic deep 
grounding in philosophy and practical application in your life. So that's kind of in the background, people who um, were important to me. Uh, but how I developed my own personal style was a combination of first accepting the idea that if you're a yoga teacher, you have a responsibility to at least know the various scriptures that if you read a little bit, these words will come up again and again. You hear about the Bhagavad Gita or the Upanishads or the Dhammapada by the Buddha or the Yoga Sutras. And so just out of the pure respect for the tradition, if you do not at least not just peruse them, but make them lifelong studies, it's a kind of disingenuous aspect from my point of view. However, you know, when we get to maybe my history, I did start off yoga studying in an ashram where it's kind of taken for granted scriptural study one of the gems that you're mining, even though you're not limited to looking at scripture, but at least if you're a teacher, you ought to know that. And then I've always felt that there's a limit to how much you can work any field by borrowing other people's ideas. You have to, at some point, make them your own. And part of that comes from willingness to accept the authenticity of your own life. And I am from Brooklyn, and you know the quote, you can take the boy out of Brooklyn, but you can't take Brooklyn out of the boy. So I felt that I had some kind of street savvy that I never wanted to lose because there's a kind of direct, gritty, yes, in your face, but no less compassion and understanding as a Brooklyn person and a New Yorker that, you know, makes you have an opinion about everything. And that doesn't mean your opinion has to be backed up by scholar scholarship. It just is a common sense streetwise understanding of things. And so I really started to combine giving my understanding of Eastern philosophy with a contemporary practitioner's understanding. And that was certainly modified over the years by first getting a business, then getting married, then raising children. So the yoga of relationship became a primary focus for me and, and still is, which took me away from the ascetic renunciate model which if we ask me a question about my history, I can explain more what I mean by that. But even though the Indian tradition has its four ashramas or stages of life, yet you pick up from the beginning that it's all leading you towards a certain kind of ascetic renunciation at the end of your life. And maybe in terms of a philosophical base to prepare you for accepting your own mortality, it was okay. But from a cultural and historical perspective, that's not our approach. And so while respecting that, I understood this is what worked for them for a very long time. We needed a different kind of paradigm. And so part of that has to come from my own take on contemporary life and also how yoga morphed from the 60s when it first started getting popular in the United States to where it is right now in terms of the new millennium. Yeah, I want to talk about that a bit, actually, because I, I really appreciate what you said about, and I think what makes you a strong teacher, is this kind of combination between, like you said, this kind of no BS street cred, but also your attention to the texts of the yoga tradition, the the the, the tradition, essentially. And, and so I, I kind of want to hear a little bit about your diagnosis and maybe your prognosis of this very uh, reality that we're dealing with now where where in general the the yoga that you're finding most represented is shirking uh, a majority of the philosophical tradition what you think that means and and maybe uh, uh, how you think we could move forward from that and, and really start to 
interject the the philosophy back into our experience of the yoga practice because at least for from my perspective that's really why I uh, created five tattvas was because uh, I really wanted to find a way to make these uh, ancient texts uh, seem relevant again you know really bring a contemporary lens to to a lot of these teachings. And I think that you do that in such a wonderful way, which is why it's so great that I, I have you on this uh, interview podcast. So wh what are your thoughts on that? Well, at the most non-judgmental level, it's not for me to tell anybody else what they should be studying to align them with spirit. Sure. If you ask me directly what I would recommend to anybody who either is a teacher, teacher trainer, or a sincere yoga practitioner... It's built into the ethics of yoga, swadhyaya, which certainly from a strict interpretation means chant om and study the scriptures and listen to the words of the various gurus because the masters have some weighty things to say. If you don't get it, that they're telling you that right out front, then in some way you're just choosing to be flip about recognizing what the tradition itself says about itself. And people are perfectly okay in doing that. Now, one of the critiques I've had over the years is that people usually don't recognize how spiritual they are, especially if they haven't had experiences that would make them consider what their life was as being very spiritual, right? Oh, I, I'm not, I haven't gone to India, right? Or, or I never went to Arizona and met some uh, Indian with turquoise around their neck, and they never took me up to the bluff in a peyote ceremony. You know? <laughs> so those kind of fantasy images, although there's some truth to that, right, that's the wrong way to understand that each person, however ordinary they are, is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And you can only do that if somebody teaches you to look at what happened in your own life as symbolic of the very things that you read about, but then often project on something outside of you instead of realizing, no, that happened to me. And so one of the things I've learned is the old metaphor had to do with what was called the hero journey, where some distinct sense of calling happens and you have to separate yourself from what you know to go on the journey. Mm -hmm. And then the journey represents the various tests and trials that a person is exposed to when they get out on the road. And there's no guarantee that by doing it, you'll be successful. That's part of the unknown, and you could say the danger. But of course, in all of these stories, there are risks that are worth taking. And it is risky to get out there and leave the known, no doubt. But when it comes to finding a deeper contact with spirit in your life, that's one of the risks that's worth taking. And then if you make it successfully, whatever that is, something has shifted in you. Your ontological status is no longer the same, and you're going to bring back whatever boon or treasure that you wrested from the God realm or from your own personal psychological struggles, and then that becomes a gift that you make as a life of service to your community. So one of the things that I think is really different about contemporary people is the amount of information we have available to us of course of course and once you're able to free the idea that language has to be captured in religious imagery for it to be spiritual i remember one teacher used to say spirituality uh organized religion is the banana peel and spirituality is the banana mm -hmm. and so for so many people who have had a disenfranchised experience with organized religion, or it's just not their cup of tea for whatever reason, then they go off in search of something that appeals to them personally. And because in our day and age, you don't have to talk about spirituality solely with the images that organized religion 
used and held sway with for a couple of thousand years. You can find your understanding of consciousness and how to touch spirit, and you can call it numinous experiences or magical experiences or non-ordinary experiences. The word is important. The fact that it's recognized in so many different disciplines. So if you find it in science, if you find it in literature, if you find it in music, if you find it in art, if you find it in psychology, if you find it in philosophy, if you find it in military understanding, if you find it in political understanding, if you find it in relationship or parenting understanding, it's all fine because what form isn't the spirit in? Yeah. So yeah. once you start realizing that, then you look back at your life, and the way I've understood it is for a modern person, the ritual initiations come in transition states. Instead of the old indigenous or primal model where at some point in time the elders are going to come to the prepubescent or early adolescent boy or girl's house and call them out and take them away from the parents and then take them off to teach them whatever they need to learn to become a full adult. That doesn't happen in our culture. But that separation, that transition state, it causes you to say, I am no longer who I was as a result of this. That happens in the divorce, in the death, in the job loss, in the shifting at, um, homes from, you know, if your parents move around a couple of times, um, you, break your, you break your arm the night before the big volleyball championship and you were the key server, you know. Uh, so those kind of losses, betrayals, disappointments, they force you to go down. And that's, of course, another one of the things that I've learned that have become incorporated in my philosophical ramblings, and that is you cannot only have the path filled with light and love. Yeah. It's just a denial of what life itself is, and it also doesn't give you the opportunity to test or be tested what you got inside of you, which is very often brought to the surface as a result of having to face those things rather than my path should be smooth and there should be any bumps in it. And then, then I'll be happy and content. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, I, I really, I'm glad that you said that because I was just listening to one of your Dharma talks uh, again recently. And one thing that you said, it actually I wanted to bring it up, was this idea of don't get attached to the light. And, uh, and you say don't get attached to the dark, but don't get attached to the light. And, and I think that's really interesting because, you know, sometimes in a yoga class, and I myself have said this, you know, after saying or before saying namaste, you often say the light within me bows to the light within you. And there seems like there's something um, uh, dualistic about that in, in that, you know, only, only the light is, is what I'm recognizing in you. And, and, and so I'm really I'm, I'm glad that you bring that up because I think it is something that I find a lot of times is a way that the, the philosophical tradition is interpreted is that we need to somehow in this kind of almost Judeo-Christian puritanical way purge ourselves of these negative qualities in order to be, you know, this, that, and the other that you associate with whatever, a, you know, a quote-unquote good yogi is. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Do you have anything else well, you want to say about that? Sure, absolutely. Well, first of all, I don't want to shame anybody or, or, or accuse them of any kind of phony holiness. Right, you know, right. you go into a yoga center or studio anywhere across the country, believe me, there's nothing wrong walking off the mean streets of wherever you live and be able to look at somebody who smiles at you with a friendly face and says something that you may not get at the beginning, you know, and says, hey, I honor the light within you. 
you know, for people who are world weary and beaten down and have had a lot of experiences where, you know, you got to cover your back and be not sure who you can trust. I think that's really fine. Right. right. We want to assume it's coming from a sincere place. At the same time, anybody who's studying a little bit beyond the surface will immediately realize that one of the beautiful things about the Hindu and therefore the yogic tradition is they embrace the darkness right away. You know, we don't have images of, of you know, Mother Mary is not Kali. Mm. You know, we don't have the images of the destructive nature of the universe as being part and parcel of what makes the whole thing go around. Yeah. You know, yeah. Shiva is the lord of the yogis, but he's also the lord of destruction. Yeah. We, yeah. Don't, we don't have that. We, we want to separate the idea that God is all good rather than whatever is that force that we want to project upon deity encompasses everything. So I think that part of it is just a naive understanding, and that's something that education will take care of as a person continues to probe into it, right? Hata, no one without the other. Right, so, right. Uh, yeah, I don't mind people doing that. And obviously, if they're too syrupy sweet, and at some point in the conversation, they don't get real and share the stuff that's bugging them, then I might, you know, look at them with a little squinty eye and wonder where, where they're they coming from. But in general, I think, it, you know, it's fine. And again, people are at different stages in their spiritual development. You know, for somebody, that's a brand new experience. For somebody like me, all right, I've been there, done that. I don't have to, like, you know be smiling all the time and every word that comes out of my mouth has to be something positive. Um, so for a newbie where that they're lapping that up, you know, it's like body and fender repair or spiritual vitamins. They need it. So that's, sure, that's sure. fine with me. Okay, great. All right. So, uh, let's go back a little bit since we've kind of been skirting around it. I would love to, to have you just kind of tell the story about your practice and, um, uh, and specifically, I really liked this this term you brought up, ontological shift. I would love to hear especially about when that shift kind of happened for you. So when you started your practice, you know, what were kind of some key moments of uh, where you had this kind of, you know, existential movement? And, and then, you know, up to today, basically. Great. Quite a long subject there. Right. All right. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite George Carlin quotes is, uh, if God took acid, would he see people? <laughs> So, you know, uh, I never deny that I certainly think that I had a blast out of my left brain by, by doing psychedelics in the, in the late 60s. So I want to get that out right away. Did I'm not everybody, a, right? I'm not, I'm not a person to say, I never smoked. No, okay, no, it's not me. So um, uh, I certainly felt that my eyes were open to seeing a certain kind of holistic perspective that was more or less denied to the left brain right. uh, uh, in, in when I was coming of age. But I, I, so I was certainly on the journey to the East before I left New York in 1970, and I ended up in California. And through very good fortune of mine, I was exposed to a Kundalini yoga class uh, in the College of Marin, uh, where I lived, and that got me involved in yoga. Now, I was living in, uh, in a couple of communes for the first year that I got there, and then there was something about it that it, it kind of ran out in terms of its usefulness to me in personal growth. And I was just looking in a different direction. And I had gotten quite friendly with the people in the ashram. And then at a certain point, I was able to move in and uh, learn some yoga techniques as well as cooking techniques, which later on proved to be vitally important to me and my friends opening the first vegetarian restaurant in Queens in 1974. Yeah, that was great. But... Uh, I didn't realize when I moved into the ashram, it was a teacher training ashram. Um, so I, I wasn't interested in being a teacher at that time, but didn't matter because that's what they were doing. They were training you to become a teacher. So 
Uh, it wasn't a career move. In, in those days, believe me, 1971, nobody was thinking of being yoga teacher as a career move. You know, no, that, that was just not happening. But uh, I kept on going with that. And, you know, when I got back to New York after a couple of years of living in California, it became apparent that, you know, I had just picked up some skills that was a little ahead of the curve, you could say. And so I started teaching in New York. And then through a series of fortuitous events, one of which was my friend getting... Now, I lived in Colorado for a while, and I happened to be in Colorado the first year that Naropa Institute opened up. Oh, wow. So I was exposed to Ram Dass teaching the Bhagavad Gita course, and Allen Ginsberg and his poetry, and Chogyam Trungpa, the master of the Kargyu lineage, was like holding court there. Wow. So it was a tremendous um, you know, spiritual renaissance at that time. And this is before Boulder also just way expanded beyond its, uh, you know, infrastructure to become the kind of, uh, you know, semi-yuppie haven that has become over the last uh, 20 years or so. But at the time, Ram Das was telling everybody to go to see these Buddhist teachers uh, and, and make a little shift away from Hindu-oriented mantra meditation, which in a certain way has a kind of centralizing factor that a person who's doing that is concentrating on me, I'm the one chanting the mantra. I'm the one getting distracted from the mantra. I'm the one checking to see how far I'm going and the results and so forth. And he said, go to this Buddhist teacher. And this was the beginning of the v Vipassana meditation school with Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield, who've become fairly prominent over the last couple of years. Yeah. So their whole thing connected also with the Tibetan Buddhist meditation was emphasis on the out-breath and letting go. Emphasis on not centralizing into an in here, a me in here, meditating on stuff out there, but had more to do with just emptying your mind, emptying of concepts, emptying of sense of self, and so forth. And then through that, really was a powerful influence because then I got invited by a friend of mine to come to a my first ten day Buddhist retreat in uh, IMS in uh, Barry, Massachusetts, the first one that they opened, and that was also a huge significance. Uh, for me in terms of personal practice and spending more time uh, sitting still and letting go. And now at the same time, I moved to Miami, and that's where I met my first Iyengar teacher. Miami? And what brought you to Miami? Well, Ram Dass, I was, I was studying with Ram Dass and these two other teachers in New York, and uh, at that time in the late 70s, 74, 75, um, the death and dying hospice movement was really first starting to click. There was a book by a woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was a Holocaust survivor and then devoted her life first to taking care of cancer patients and then just tried to bring death out of the closet. It wasn't a very uh, popular subject to talk about. And there was a death and dying hotline that was set up so that young people who were interested in speaking to people who are going through their own terminal illness and people who are aware of their own mortality but for some reason felt no one wanted to talk to them about it, they could interface and, and have a little dialogue and uh, serve each other. So Ramdas was telling us all, you don't know anybody over 30. You know, you're from the generation that say you don't trust anybody over 30. Well, you're going to be over 30 soon. Don't you think it's time to... Uh, break out of that little mindset and expand what you think your spiritual practice was. And, and he was right on there because 
almost everybody at that time who was involved in spirituality was a younger person. And that, as this will lead, I'm sure, into what's happening later on. And there were no ritual elders. There was no one else that I was looking up to. Very, very few spiritual teachers um, who were 20, 30, or 40 years older than me at the time that I could look to and say, you know, I want to be like that. I want to find out what made this person fly in the spirit like that, and, and I want to find out how I can do that. So I ended up moving to Miami because I wanted to work in hospice. And it also had a secondary possibility of maybe helping my family fulfill their life goal, like many New Yorkers, to like, you know, snowbird or relocate back in Florida. Yeah. So yeah. I ended up in Miami, and uh, I saw this billboard in Coconut Grove, uh, you know, a health food store, that just as a little backstory, when you practice kundalini yoga, most of the time you're in baggy pants and kurtas, um, you know, long flowing Indian uh, shirts, and which is very comfortable and very, very nice, but in a certain way it also hides your body. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw the advertisement for this uh, Iyengar yoga class, I know ha- had no idea who Iyengar yoga, uh, who Mr. Iyengar was at the time. The guy was in a tank top and like basketball shorts. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's cool. Now, maybe it's just because it goes, goes well with Florida where you're hanging outside all the time. But I said, that's really cool. And then when I went to that first class, the first teacher, Bobby Golden, was a pint-sized you know, uh, yogini, uh, five foot four, whatever. But I saw her flip up into handstand and push up in a backbend like effortlessly. And I said, oh, my God, I have just quantum leaped into the next thing. <laughs> so uh, and then when I found out that, you know, the uh, the details were going in, in the pose, and I had hurt my back, you know, further backstory. Mm-hmm. I injured my back when I was 15. And so one of the impetuses, impetuses to get into yoga was to find something else to help me deal with the, uh, the irritation that I had on an ongoing basis. Um, but Kundalini Yoga, although it helped me to get into a discipline and understand eat some philosophy and teach me about food, um, it wasn't as impeccable and precise in its alignment. It certainly had you know, things like hold your arm up at 60 degrees, but other than that, it wasn't really sharp in its delineation of anatomical parts and relationship of one part to another. Mm. So Although I got a lot from it, it was much more of a power, uh, strength, and concentration technique, which which did me well for that time. But as soon as I got into the Iyengar technique, I realized, okay, this is like teaching me more about my body and the mechanics of uh, what I need to learn for myself. And then, of course, they had all these props, and the props were an ingenious way of learning how to hold the pose longer, go deeper into the pose, traction yourself, uh, learn variations, and, and of course teach you how to get subtle so you learn right away. The props are not just for people who can't do it. The props help the more advanced practitioner learn subtleties so that it can eventually uh, do the poses independently. And then as I stayed with that technique for the next five, six, seven years, you know, you pay attention and you realize, wow, there are these workshops. And, you know, apparently the senior teachers in the technique, they're out on the road and you start taking a workshop or two and all of a sudden you realize... Every one of these people is really good, and every one of them is teaching the same system, and yet they're all slightly different. And they all say, it's not me. The big enchilada is BKS Iyengar. And so it took me 11 years before I made it to India in 1987, but I was already so enamored and in love with this man because of what he was doing and how these 
variety of teachers were were sharing their thing in such a creative and innovative way. So I was hooked, and that was you know from 1976 to 1983, and and that was the more that was the transition where I ended up finishing a master's degree in in Vermont, and then made the next move, which got me to Chicago, and. Uh, you know, then the, the final part of the story was uh, I looked for an Iyengar class. I saw another, at God bless the health food stores, I saw another advertisement for a woman who was teaching up in the dance studio in Northwestern University. I took a train up there. Her name was Joni Williams. She was fabulous. And I was so excited. And at the end of the first class, she says, I'm leaving to go study with my teacher in Seattle, Bob Smith. I said, what? <laughs> what? Or do you have anybody to recommend? And she recommended this other teacher, Judy Landecker. And so I went to see this teacher, and she was fabulous. And so I started taking classes with her. And then I kept hearing her mention that this other teacher, who I'd never studied with, Ramanan Patel, who was the senior teacher of all the existing teachers at that time, he's coming for a workshop. But the woman who was the workshop coordinator was not in class recently because she was taking her Sanskrit Ph.D., Wow, in wow. the University of Chicago. So I had to call this woman, Beatrice Briggs, to get a slot in the workshop. And our first conversation, it was like the intellectual comrade that I didn't even know I had been looking for. You know, here's a woman who's like me. We could talk about six different translations of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And I'm sure like each one of us was saying, whoa, who, you know, what kind of intellect is this person showing? And we just really hit it off. And then within a year or two, we ended up partnering and taking the other three existing Iyengar teachers who we knew who all had their own small following but didn't have a central place. And so that's when the yoga circle opened up in September 85. Wow. And, uh, you know, from there, you know, we, we had a little rocky first couple of years, but then I eventually bought my ex-partner out. And then within that same period of time, got exposed to my own personal therapy, men's work, met the woman who was to be my wife and mother of my kids. And so that all started to coalesce in like 1990, 1991. And then the rest is history. And I, you know, I certainly want to say I'm very, very proud that we just celebrated 30 years of being uh, in the community uh, because that was one of my visions, which was the first 15 years of my yoga life yoga career it was like as an independent contractor you know i wasn't a fly-by-night person i was always responsible but i didn't stay in places too long and then right. said the next place i go i'm going to put down roots and that turned out to be chicago so my field of dreams opened up here and you know i i would say with with, with great pride i haven't burned many bridges uh, i never felt that when i looked at somebody else who's in a different yoga technique that just because sometimes the elite form of Iyengar interpretation can make it think like if you have alignment that somehow people whose poses are sloppier than that don't know shit from Shinola, that's not a yoga perspective. So I've never been intolerant of other ways. And so I've made a lot of friends uh, in different techniques over the years. And stood the test of time. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of people go into businesses underfunded who don't realize the amount of work it takes to create a community and not just teach classes. Or they're not willing to put the sweat equity in. They want it to be easy. Uh, 
they don't realize that sometimes, even if you have to pay out of your own pocket, if it's a labor of love and you even lose money, is that why you went into to, to yoga teaching, to make money hand over fist? I don't think so. No, probably so, not. So, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you get into that thing, and then all of a sudden it evolves, and I've been very, very fortunate in having fantastic people come in and out of my doors. And, uh, you know, like any business, you, you grow people. You don't just grow the business. Right. And so right. that has to... You know, if you're going to lead people that way, you have to find out what it is that's important to them, and you have to give them opportunities to satisfy their own personal goal, while at the same time achieving the mission statement of your own business. It's like, it's like any business organization, right? The CEO sets out and says, "This is what we're about," and then uh, we want to bring you aboard, but we want to make sure that you satisfy what you need to do, and then it's a win-win situation. And so, you know, uh, it's one of my mantras: if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for me. Don't set up anything about coming to the yoga circle and being involved at any level if in any way just the thought of it makes you go, oh, no, i got to go there again. No, no, we don't want that attitude at all. We want you to think that it's such a fantastic thing that you have a community to connect to like that, that you're kind of jumping out of your skin. You can't wait to get there, and you bring that good vibe with you. And, you know, what can I say? I, I, that, that's what we've done. Yeah, I think that, I think that, that uh, that's very important because that energetic – you know, quality of just not wanting to be there definitely has reverberating effects, you know, in, in the people that you're teaching. So I wanted to talk a little bit actually about Mr. Ayengar because, you know, it's becoming more and more rare, obviously, for practitioners to be able to claim relationships to some of the, you know, at least the modern uh, gurus uh, of the tradition. So I'm wondering, could you share a little bit, maybe a couple stories about Mr. Ayengar and then also... You know, obviously, since uh, his soul passed on this past year, how has the relationship to your practice changed by having, you know, lost your teacher in that way? Very good questions. Uh, well, first story. Uh, the first time I, I went there was 1987. And the moment I walked in the studio, he turned to the teacher who was the uh, organizer of the trip and said, you see that man? His chest is like Sam Dworkis. <laughs> Which meant he recognized the kind of pigeon-type, puffed-up ego arrogance that I had somehow <laughs> learned to model after this, the first male teacher that I had down in Miami. And so, you know, I heard that as a story from this other teacher. And I said, wow, how perceptive. He didn't even know who I was, and he was already pick up something about me. So uh, that was like the first, uh, first thing I heard about him. Um, you know, there, there's, it's hard to pick. There's so, there's so many different things to say. Um, you know, one thing I learned from him was to trust my eyes. I think the, uh, the last time that I was there in India, he, I had finally gotten over the fear that some people have about approaching him when he's not in the yoga shower. You know, That's when he's in the yoga room, he's a tiger on the prowl. And, you know, you just, like, keep out his way and just, you know, listen to anything he says. But I learned over the years that the key to having a personal relationship with him is stalk him in the library in the afternoon where he's doing his personal uh, correspondence and doing some study and keep the subject to yoga. And all of a sudden, it opens up a whole fountain of knowledge flowing from him to you. And through that... Uh, he once took me through the yoga uh, institute in Pune, and you know he has the he has the pictures of himself from Light on Yoga all around the the wall, 
and a few newer pictures uh, of how his practice has evolved over the years. Because 19, I think it's 1966 is when Yo Light on Yoga came out. The pictures were taken a couple of years before. He opened the institute in 1975. So since then, he's had you know other pictures taken of himself. And he asked me to go around and say, you know, criticize the poses and tell me which poses are better, which was a daunting kind of thing. Uh, but I took that to mean like, you know, if I'm going to be honest, he's trusting my eyes to give him accurate feedback about what I see. So that was a really nice moment of empowerment. And, and then I remember once Setu Bandhasarangasana is a pose that they use a lot in India. And I once went to him and I said, you know, sir, you, you teach this pose in so many different ways in the medical class. You know, why do you do it this way and then why do you do it this way? And then he said to me, haven't I taught you the base of the pose? I said, yes. He said, then why don't you put yourself in the different variations and stay there for 15 and 20 minutes and find out what happens? Mm. So I thought that was a real typical master. They don't give you the answers. They, they teach you something, and then it's your responsibility to take the ball and run with it. Yeah. They often, you know, you know create more questions than they do answers, right? Mm. Um, and then he came in 1990 on the tour while he was in there. There was a big uh, convention in San Diego. And, uh, you know, I remember him coming into the room. By this time, you know, previous conventions, I've learned how to play the game. You know, some people are so totally unnerved when he walks into the room that they just, like a deer in the headlights, they just completely freeze up. And that is not the way transmission happens. Right. You, right. Have, you have to learn to just let him fillet you in front of everybody else, mm. get your ego out of the way. You know, if you're a long-time, you know, student, You've seen this happen to other people on an ongoing basis, and they don't melt. They just take the hit and then immediately use the exact same words he just said and put it right into action. Don't waste any time. And so I had learned this already, and I remember when he came in to criticize uh, my teachings in the Pravritta Trikonasana, something like that, right? I just melted and just I knew what was going on, and I just surrendered to what he did. And, he, and then he told all his, his entourage, you see this man? He has a mind that doesn't waver at all. And that's what he's trying to, to, to make you understand, that whatever the situation is, yoga is supposed to give you a certain kind of equanimity, whether the equanimity is, you know, don't get freaked out when you're stuck in a traffic jam, or don't get freaked out if the master comes in the room and rips, rips your whole, you know, your pose apart in front of all the people. You know, you can think of it as a shaming experience, or you can think of it as like, you know, no, the master is teaching you, and you get a chance to surrender and see what's going on. So he came to Chicago and stayed with me and my partner, and it was a real life highlight in 1990. Beautiful. And, uh, you know, immediately comes into the yoga studio and, you know, immediately sees things with his eyes about you could be using this to use this kind of prop and you can use this with this kind of prop. And, uh, you know, a wonderful thing. Someone had just called the week before he came in uh, to say he's married to an Indian woman and his mother-in-law is coming to visit. And everywhere she goes, she likes to ask local yoga studios, is there any kind of karma yoga or service she can offer? So I said, she wouldn't happen to be a cook, would she? He said, yeah, she's a fantastic South Indian cook. I said, the guru is coming in next week. Would she consider coming and making a meal for, um, you know? So it was fantastic. She got banana leaves and did a special thing. And Mr. Ayengar was like the Jewish mother, just serving everybody, you know. You couldn't refuse a second helping. And uh, it was just nice to see him in a different mindset like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, man, just many, many things. But uh, And again, you know, many stories with his daughter. I have to also say his daughter and son. Uh, Gita and Prashant have also been extremely influential 
in my own teaching and, of course, took on a brunt of the teaching as well. Most of the time, they were teaching the trainings or the um, public classes, and Mr. Ang would just come in and interrupt and take over. So I certainly have a, a debt of gratitude to the things I learned from them. Uh, of course, all of them have slightly different interpretations of his teaching and slightly different ways of articulating in English uh, how to get it across to the Western students. So, but in, in general, I would say, you know, when your teacher dies, the first thing you, you realize is that, you know, did you have a spiritual relationship with him or you're totally attracted to his body? Mm. And so on one level, uh, nothing has changed. Right. Because if you understand who the man was, he didn't ever care if you called him Guruji. He never taught, he never, as far as I saw, he never treated anybody else who just called him Mr. Iyengar with any sense of disdain or sense that, oh, you're not respecting me. You know, why aren't you like bowing down and kissing my feet like these other people who are devotees? No. Right. He didn't right. care about that. What he really cared about is do you love the art? Have you committed yourself to the art? And if you committed yourself to the art, you don't need the guru around. You're practicing on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. You're living, breathing, thinking yoga. It's not just the asana practice. Your, your whole being is immersed in what, what yoga represents, this urge to merge with the divine. So that's something that had been embodied in me. And, and just to give you an example of the spirit of the guru without him being around, is uh, I, I got an inflammatory condition about a year ago. And uh, it really debilitated me, knocked me knocked me down, made me like a frail elderly person for a while. And I didn't miss a day of pranayama. But I was so weak at some point, I couldn't literally lift my hand up to my nose to do any kind of digital control. And, you know, right away, the spirit of Mr. Hangar came to me and just said, you wanted to practice pranayama? Take the bolster and put it underneath your elbow so it lifts your hand up so you can touch your nose. <laughs> and it was the same kind of no-nonsense, you know, not less compassionate, but, you know, smack upside the head. Like, you know, you're an Iyengar yoga teacher. If you want to do it, haven't I taught you enough to modify the pose? So stop whining and continue to practice. And, of course, that's like a gift because, you know, you can see it as a harsh statement, but you realize there's a certain truth there. And, and, and this is one of the old mantras. You know, there's a truth, there's a suffering that comes from practicing, and there's a suffering that comes from not practicing. Choose the suffering that comes from practicing. So... You know, his, so his loss at a personal level hasn't influenced me in terms of my own personal practice. I've certainly had to modify my personal practice as I've gotten older, as he did. But uh, whether he's in the body or not, I mean, that was one of the early things you realize. He doesn't care if you're practicing or not. He only cares that he's practicing. And if the sun comes up in the, uh, in the West tomorrow, he's going to hit the mat in the same way. To know that there's one human being who's that solid, that committed, and is doing it for no other reason than his joy and commitment to the art form. That was very, very inspiring to me. So that has nothing to do with whether he's alive or not alive. Spiritually, is just as alive for me as ever before. Now, how it affects me and, and the rest of uh, Iyengar Yoga, well, that remains to be seen over the next couple of years. If people fall apart because there's no linchpin holding everything together. But then again, you know, why, why was that the thing that was holding you together before? Was your practice only based on him having to be around, having to be alive? He gave so much. There's a limit to how any human being can share their love of their, their discipline or their form. At some point, you have to go beyond that. So uh, I've never been that much of an organizational person anyway. 
So it's it's been much easier for me to say, well, Mr. Engler is alive, you know, not alive now. I, I don't have that much of a commitment to the national organization. They have some good goals. I still like the training that they they're doing to uh, prepare people for certification, which has gotten much more rigorous and much more intelligent in a certain way over the years. Mm -hmm. But for me, this goes back to 2007, long before Mr. Engler passed away, the first convention where no Iyengar actually came. I was so excited to see what the senior teachers are going to lay out for the American Dharma and the vision for the future. And I was really disappointed when I realized they did not have a vision for the American Dharma. They were still following orders from India. And it's, strangely, I mean, at a political level, I had certainly had withdrawn my looking to Washington for leadership. Right. So, right. I, I can't even give it a historical date because it probably goes back to the 60s, right? Sure. But this was why I somehow assumed that leadership would come from outside me and was hoping that somehow they would take the ball and, and show us what to do in the future instead of realizing I am the leader for my own vision. Mm. And, and I don't look at other people. I don't go to other people's websites to see what they're doing. People look at my website to see what the standard of the, of the industry is. So maybe that takes chutzpah. You know, you got to have stones to say that. But, you know, if you're a leader in any field, you're not looking at what other people are doing. You're coming from your own gut. So uh, that kind of also took me further away from the organ organized aspect of Iyengar yoga without in any way saying that they don't do really good things and turn out good teachers. But the organization wasn't for me because I was looking for something else that wasn't connected necessarily to Iyengar yoga. Right, and maybe right. that will be the transition into the ritual elder part. It's interesting that you say that about um, uh, about kind of uh, the difference between taking the principles that you've learned and kind of doing being creative with that based on your own experience, and then and then you know being handed down in this kind of uh, I don't know if authoritarian is the right word, but centralized way from from India. And I, I, it's interesting because I've noticed that there are two my my experience with Iyengar yoga, which I I, pra I try to practice Iyengar at least once or twice a week, in addition to my vinyasa practice. Because I found in the teachers that I that I study with, and I, I felt this way about your workshops as well, is that there's, you know, on one side, there's the people who are kind of maybe fresh from their Iyengar teacher training, and they kind of deploy a standardized sequence. You know, it's a lot of prasarada, padatanasana based, um, you know, facing the side or whatever. But but then there's these teachers like you, uh, Jenny Capular, Carrie O'Worko, and uh, Nikki Costello are a few I can think of who... The principles seem to be there. It's this principle of like profound detail, but also profound creativity. That uh, you know, I go to a class, and and their ability to articulate uh, uh, in terms of you know alignment and, and verbal cues is really something that it, it it's not just handed down. You can tell. I mean, maybe there's a little bit that's been that's circulated amongst teachers, but in general, there's this kind of freedom to really use this. Um, uh, the power of language to really get us into the subtleties of the body. So, so to me, that's what Yangar has become in, in my experience. So, yeah. well, the old school Yangar teachers understand that you know you've learned principles, and like any form, you know, you watch a dancer be free on stage in their movements, but that freedom came from hours and hours of practicing basics. And sticking with the form. Right, and right. once you learn the form, a certain kind of freedom comes to go beyond the form. 
So the form in the Iyengar Yoga thing has to do with basic alignment details and certain principles. But once you understand those principles, you know, the amount of innovation and creativity that becomes available to you is enormous. Yeah. And then you add the yeah. prop work, and if you want to do partner work, I mean, there's just there's no end to it. It's only limited by your application of it. So, you know, teachers like that who you've named, yeah, they're not so rigid. It isn't. It's it's an extremely creative thing. And this is another thing. Anybody who doesn't know that probably never studied Mr. Angar, because every time you go there, <clears throat> he's teaching something different. He's moved on from wherever he was the last time. And also, you can't understand where the mind of the master is. <clears throat> from the way we try to analyze things in the left brain. Let me give you an example. The first time I went there in 1987, it was in July, and they started every class with Supta and then dog pose. So <clears throat> I came home, I started every class with Supta and dog pose. <laughs> then I went back in the fall of 1989, and they started every pose with handstand, elbow balance, dog pose, and Uttanasana. So after three days, I was completely confused. So I immediately went to Gita and said, okay, you know, what's going on? This is what would happen the last time. This is what happened now. You're changing your teaching? She said, no. The first time you were here, it was summer. It was monsoon season. Everybody was having digestive difficulties. So we started off with soup de rasin to quiet everybody's stomach. Wow. Then the next time you came was in the fall. It was the cool season. So we started off with poses that awakened heat in the body. Yeah. So, again, this is just not what Westerners think. So, you know, there's the game. You can't play the game of trying to figure out what the master, like we say, you can't bait the master, otherwise you end up being a masturbator. <laughs> you know, so you, you give that up right away and just, okay, they're being innovative. I may not understand the reason. I can ask them later, but just surrender and learn some basic things about sequencing and alignment details and train your eyes. Mm. Train your eyes because ultimately that's what it becomes, your ability to see what the student is not doing well and then your ability to articulate um, both what's going on in your own body when you're doing it, but then how to give a cue to help a student who's uh, auditorily um, uh, influenced. You know, you know, this general teaching principle just as a little side thing. You know, there are visual students and auditory students and tactile students. So if you're a really a great teacher, you're going to be able to say the cue good for the people who need to hear it articulate it well you're going to demonstrate the pose cleanly or have somebody else demonstrate it better than you for the people who visually need to see what it looks like and then you're going to do the hands-on correction for the people who no matter how clear the demo was and how clear the instruction was unless you tactilely put them in the position and give them a, a good non-sexual hands-on adjustment they're not going to get the aha that's what you're talking about yeah so you know, those are the three things you got to do. And then the master teacher is going to make you love the discipline. So you're going to be a lifer. Right. Hmm. So one of, one of the things that you, that you had mentioned, which I, which I think is a good segue into what I want to talk about next was how, uh, the practice evolves and as you age and, and I think it's, there's a, there's kind of a juncture that happens, especially because there's so many young people practicing yoga. And I think the vinyasa style, 
um, tends to invoke a kind of idea of accumulating postures, you know, so there's this desire to, to have a large repertoire of, of fancy asanas, you know, and, and you have to come to a juncture where, you know, your body can no longer, your body becomes more limited because your body is aging and, and, and certain postures no longer be possible and, and inevitably the practice, and not inevitably, but in a lot of instances from what I've seen of people who've pra been practicing for 10 years or more, they start to become more attracted to the therapeutic side of the practice. They start to become more attracted to the use of blocks. I mean, for me personally, I, I, if I had walked into my first yoga class being a Yengar, I probably never would have come back because I wanted to sweat. I was very, you know, addicted to the gym at the time. I was very um, much wanting a kind of intense, you know, vigorous workout. And it wasn't until maybe the last three or four years of my practice that I really uh, started to see the benefits and just kind of geek out on 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 Iyengar and also the teachers that have been insp inspired by the Iyengar practice. Um, but what I really wanted to talk about is is this um, idea of the ritual elder that you and I had been discussing or in our email exchange, because you were mentioning how this is really where you're at at the moment. And I think it's a really important topic, not only because, uh, for, well, for both reasons, ritual is, seems to be something that's generally um, not as valued in you know, contemporary Western culture, and also the elder. I mean, the, uh, the, the, the culture of the elder seems to be something that's kind of dissolved somewhat, although since I started kind of thinking about this topic, since you and I have been, have been emailing each other, I've also thought that the, the yoga community seems to be really bringing back, in some sense, the experience of the elder. I mean, obviously, there are teachers like you. There are teachers who have been with this practice for 25, 30 years. And it's, it's obvious how well-respected they are, at least within the yoga community. So at least within this kind of microcosm of the yoga world, there seems to be a returning of, of respect for the elder. So I'm, I'm sort of wondering if you agree with that and, and sort of what your thoughts are about that. Sure. Uh, well, you know, first thing is to realize if you ever met Mr. Angar, the first thing you realize, he's a mystic. Mm. And that means even though he may primarily be known as a person whose asana practice is impeccable, right, right. and if you looked at what he was doing in 1938 when he was like 16, he was certainly doing all the jumping vinyasa poses, and, uh, you know, that's another story about how he took a different route from uh, what I would call the more sweating aspect of the practice. Um, but a mystic is a person who understands, regardless of what system, you don't become one with it, no matter how progressively one you become with the study. Mm. You become like a Zen archery teacher. You can miss the target with every shot and still be doing great Zen archery because ultimately you're not trying to hit a target. There is no target. Or you could say there's an inner target which can't be seen on the outside. So there's something about yoga. What you're trying to achieve in yoga isn't something that just happens because you can do a lot of kick-ass asana, even though there's nothing wrong with doing a lot of kick-ass asana. But again, even in yoga, asana is supposed to be a limb in the eight limbs that have to help train you to be in a more meditative absorption, which means you're going to stay in a pose. And, uh, you know, there's a funny story about Mr. Iyengar once helping the children of the Institute do a presentation. So he goes out, introduces the children, and then lies over a bar stool for, <clears throat> for 45 minutes while the children are doing the presentation. And then the next day in the paper it says, old yogi can only do one pose. 
<laughs> so he, he used to say, when I was younger, I played. Now that I'm older, I stayed. Mm-hmm. So there's something that comes from not only just being injured, but also finding the depth in any asana to free you from the conflictual aspects of the mind and find out what other meditative focus can happen if you're not looking forward to the next posture or, or a deeper posture, which is also connected to my idea of postponement. Mm. And, uh, I'd love to get into that uh, at another time. Maybe we can have another the idea. That, to me, this is one of the, the stink of contemporary practice is the postponement to something other than just being in the here and now. Anyway, the ritual elder thing I think is really important, except that I would say that it has to go way beyond the yoga community. Yes, I'm happy to know that Yoga has a certain connection to the Rishi idea or the Guru idea, and therefore there's a veneration for someone who's supposed to be a past master who's been at it a long time that you project upon them a certain level of respect or wisdom or you know insight. Yes, that's really true. But again, in a, in a world where we have a very, very different idea about somebody who's a teacher or a mentor compared to the idea of a Guru, which almost always in India is connected to divine infallibility. If a person's really a guru, they're supposed to be embodying the divine. And, you know, does that mean they can't be wrong? You know, for a Western student, that's very, very dangerous to think that, you know, you're going to not look at a human being's actions and find anything to criticize about it. That you're going to project some kind of perfection on everything they do. That's dangerous. That's leaving your critical intellect at the door. That's not good. And, uh, you know, there's been many excesses in the yoga world to show you what happens when you do that. Right. right. But separate from that is the, yes, okay, so some of us have been practicing 25, 30, 45 years. You know, it doesn't necessarily make you into a master, can't master infinity, or a guru uh, because you're accepting your humanity. You still have flaws. Maybe you understand some of the jargon better. You can demonstrate things and give perspective to people. But for me... I want people in the yoga community to break out of what I call yogic apartheid. Mm-hmm. That you're surrounded by other people who you think are more conscious, so somehow you're better or higher or cleaner or closer or purer than other people who don't practice yoga, right? Or do, people who don't eat a plant-based diet or people who aren't thinking green or people yeah. whose political views don't accept you know, same-sex marriage or the LGBT community or the ozone layer, whatever it is, there could be any reason to divide people from each other, whereas yoga is supposed to come to unite people together. So this doesn't mean that you can't have an opinion about the truth and put it out in a direct and frank way if people ask you. But at the same time, if your own lifestyle ends up alienating you from other people, something is wrong. So I don't mind for people to be acknowledging the older practitioners as being ritual elders for their their community. But the truth is, the elders are all over. It's just that we, again, we don't recognize them as such. So you may have to have gone back over your life and looked at who gave you initiations. And and again, it doesn't only have to be a much older person. To be a ritual elder, you don't have to just be 70 or 80. Right. Right. You can be in your 40s or your 50s already and like your ritual eldering for your community for the people who are like 20 or 30 years younger than you already. Yeah. Yeah. So... I wouldn't just limit it to a chronological understanding, but I do feel that as one gets older, you have something to share with younger people. And this is 
this is the intergenerational connection that mythologically has always been there, what's called the puer and the senex, the flying boy and the old man. We need each other. There are things that we each give to each other that cannot be gotten alone. Like when they say, get it together, you don't get it together alone. You get it together together. So each one of us has different psychological tasks to, uh, to work at, at the stage or of life we are, or the season of life that you're, you're in. And, you know, there's useful, youthful exuberance that adds a certain energetic upliftment to be around when you're an older person. You know, it has nothing to do with what you've accomplished or whatever. You know, there's just pure life force coming through a person, whether it's a child, right, certainly an infant or a child or, you know, a teenager. You know, you see all that budding life force. Uh, you just have respect for just what they are. They don't have to be anything different than who they are. And the same thing is really true for an elder. Once you start respecting what your life experience is, well, not all your life experience has been easy. You, you've had uh, a lot of hard knocks. And if you survive up to now, you have a lot of great stories to share. But if you don't value that as something that needs to be heard or wants to be heard by the people around you, then you kind of shrink and think like I'm not as important. I, I don't make as much money in the economic world. You know, uh, should I be like my friends and just line up to get medicine instead of be the person who like people come to so I can dispense medicine to them in the form of the stories of my life? And, of course, as you get older, you're faced to things that – now, again, I hurt my back when I was 15, so in a certain way, I had to pay attention to ongoing discomfort at the body level. But for people who are relatively healthy, you usually push these things away. I don't want to have to think about it. Until my own parent or grandparent gets ill or dies, I try to just kind of go through life blithely forgetting basic Buddhism, right? Sickness, old age, and death. It's the three heavenly messengers. It's always there, but – most people don't want to look at it until they have to or they're forced to. Yeah. Whereas the more mature perspective is to realize that when you get older, your body's going to change. Your lifestyle is going to change. You've probably lost a number of friends, maybe your own family already. God forbid your spouse or your kids. You can't deny the fact that you're a day closer to the day of your own death. And so one of the things you want to do is you want to be able to share whatever gifts and talents you have and help empower other people who don't recognize the extraordinariness of their own life. Uh, when I was younger, as I said, I looked for the ritual elder. I ended up turning into the ritual elder. But I didn't have an older person who looked at me and said, you're magnificent. You're fantastic. You, you wrote how many songs by the time you were 22? You're kidding me. That's unbelievable. I didn't have one part person to look at me, punch my ticket, and make me feel great about myself. Mm -hmm. I, I had developed that inwardly. And I'm not. Do you think that evolved? Did that evolve uh, slowly? Like this, uh, you know, this shift of kind of um, position where you you recognize yourself as a ritual elder, or do you think it was something that you really had to consciously step into, or was it more? A, was it more a process of you noticed people recognizing you in this? You know, that you are a, kind of a pillar of wisdom, and, and therefore you stepped into it as a result of that recognition. A pillar of wisdom. I don't know about that, but. Uh, <laughs> Certainly, as I took on leadership roles, you know, and also becoming like, you know, the, the, the owner of the business and then the head of the community, uh, first of all, let's say I understood archetypally that I was already living the wounded healer myth. Mm. 
So my studies had exposed me to that as one of the archetypal dominance that's in so many people's lives. You know, so just like a person who frees themselves from addiction is in a great position to help other addicts. So obviously, having had an injury myself, I was much more sympathetic right away to people who were carrying injuries. And of course, you get into Iyengar Yoga, who isn't carrying injuries? Everybody. So uh, that kind of opened it up in one way. And then, you know, when, when you lead, you know, you, you are sharing what you think is important yourself. And so that sets you up to have people look at you as if you know. And that's a double-edged sword because in some way you do know. And then in other ways, of course, you don't know. And the more you're able to admit what you don't know, the more real you become in the eyes of other people because they realize you're not giving them a snow job or a con job about anything, that you tell the truth. What you know, you know. What you don't know, you willingly admit you don't know. Let's try to find out or find, go to somebody else who knows. And uh, I also was able to share my, old, my whole aging, my psychotherapeutic process, my dating process, my marriage process, my uh, having kids process. Every single week, I just started talking about those things in addition to the way I would talk about the yoga philosophy because I realized I never heard any teachers talk about that. Yeah. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share that. I'm going to be different. Uh, so that was kind of a gradual uh, look at what was not out there and then bring the things in that were important to me that I could say, this is my experience. So I didn't have to try to pretend I was somewhere where I wasn't. And, of course, that resonated with a lot of students because, you know, what I call life in the trenches. You know, when I'm up in front of the class, I put my teacher persona on and I try to come from as much clarity and courage and conviction and creativity and compassion and cleverness, you know, all the C's that he used to say a teacher needs. But then, of course, when I would get home, you know, all I hear my my wife would say is, uh, take out the garbage, oh, master of awareness, you know. Or, you know, clean, clean, clean the, the house. The kids got toys all over the place, you know, so clean, clean up a little bit so we can have a path to walk or whatever. No, it's back down to something extremely pedestrian, the real Zen, no, nothing special. But again, that gave me more authenticity because it wasn't like I'm, you know, living high on the hog and I got people serving me left and right and, and therefore I'm, you know, giving you the wisdom from on high. No, no, no. I'm cleaning up the dog poop and I'm filling out my taxes and I'm doing the shore, the chop shopping, and I'm getting up in the morning to deal with the baby crying and ch- just like everybody else. Yeah, and yeah. at the same time, I'm also continuing my spiritual practices and not letting anything be an excuse because my life is my spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and yoga is your lifestyle, not just the yoga practices you do. So that became aware. And then, you know, as it started morphing into when I got into psychotherapy, I started adding what I would call the shadow aspect of the teachings, which is where you start to embrace all the down aspects or the things that you wish weren't happening in your life and in the world, but they are. And uh, are you familiar with the, the Zen concept of the koan? Mm, yes. Okay. So this is really, yeah, well, the koan is in the, uh, in the Rinzai sect or the, the Soto sect, these two, they're both meditation-based, but one has this extra addition of an insoluble question that the master asks you that you have to go back and try to um, figure out, and it can't be answered by your left brain. Right. It's designed to kind of basically befuddle your left brain and stop it, and in that moment of emptiness, you get a glimpse, you get a little, you know, awakening. Yeah. So 
and I guess there are progressive koans. You get one, they ask you another one. Is you know they have, they have their own game with it. But the thing to make you understand is your own life is the most irritating koan there is. Mm. <laughs> and to be able to accept the fact that, like, yep, perfectly designed for you, you know, no way out, no solution, no Zen master, no sensei, no Roshi, no guru, no Hopi elder, no Benedictine monk, no Hasidic rabbi, nobody has the answer for you. Mm-hmm. It's so perfectly designed for where you're at to get right in there and, like, unnerve you how perfect. Yeah. And what you have to learn how to do is turn the things that were burdens in your life and therefore things that you're always trying to fix and correct, which only makes you judgmental on other people, and instead take a conscious life review of why or how everything has happened in your life and can you look at that now and come from a place of spirit Mm. and say, I am no longer that. And I'm going to look at every one of those incidents and even the people in it, and I'm going to bless all those people and be thankful and grateful that I had that experience that's brought me to where I am now. Mm. And then if you can learn to do that as you age, that gives another kind of gravitas or depth. Uh, I even say heaviness to what you have to say because you're not bullshitting this Pollyanna. Everything is pie in the sky and light and love, and there is that. Right, and I right. think that if you studied me for you know, any length of time, you'd never find my, my, my students saying, he's such a blue note. He's such a Debbie Downer. He's always talking about shadow. I wish he would get off the case and get a light. No. There's plenty of joy and plenty of celebration and plenty of passion. But now I also have found a way to take every shameful teaching, every humiliating teaching, every fearful teaching, every sadness, grief-oriented teaching, every anxiety that I have and bring it into the path Mm -hmm. and show how I'm working with that at this stage in my life and what I have to offer other people is that as well as the joy, the passion, and the yoga technique. And that just speaks to people all over because not, not many people stay intensely committed to yoga practice. They may want to, but you probably could see this from your own life, different stages in your life. I'm just not as available. I have too many demands being made upon me. I can't practice the way I did 10 years ago or 15 years ago, not just because of aging, whatever. I I have a new job or I just got married or the the kids are taking more time. Yes, I understand that. But what does that have to do with thinking, living, and breathing yoga and bringing all these other relationship and emotional dynamic changes into into your, your yogic sadhana? So to me, that appeals to the people who hear what I have to say and... You know, I lead by example. Uh, that, that's what I'm going through in my life, how my body is changing, how I've dealt with illness recently, how I've dealt with the empty nest syndrome and the preparation for the next stage, the fork in the road, when it'll be time to close the yoga circle and move on to something else. You know, the personal um, facing, who am I when I'm not teaching yoga? You know, yeah. I could say I, I can't wait for the challenge. I have so many other parts of me that want to come out. But the truth is, you know, it's been my riding companion for the last 45 years. So, I, you know, I'm up for the task and it's, I'm not around the bend. I'm not in the home stretch yet. But I know that that's like for me, a kind of, if not personal crisis, just, you know, uh, the next stage in my life, um, which I'm preparing for by trying to put pieces in place. So when I get to that stage, I have an A plan, I have a B plan. If this doesn't work, I'm going to go there. And, uh, and right now... Yeah, I, what I've been doing is, I, I hope I, I'd love you to do this. You get a chance, go to the, my web, my new website, dharmaraps.com. Okay. 
I've finally been able to slowly integrate my Dharma talks, no longer selling them on CD now, going to MP3 and, uh, you know, providing for the future what I think it will be multiple streams of income for me when I no longer want to teach or maybe I'm not capable of teaching. But I'm trying to organize all the stuff now that I've done for so many decades and get it out there as well as remind my daughters, you guys better pay attention to this because this could be future income for you. That's incredible. I mean, I, I, I even remember when I, when I first heard, went to your workshops and you did those incredible Dharma talks, you were focusing a lot about uh, on fairy tales at the time that we won't have uh, time to touch on today, but some other time I'd love to talk to you about that. But I remember thinking, you know, that it was incredible that, there, that you really didn't have a platform yet online where you were able to share this because you are such an incredible speaker and, and teacher. So I'm really happy to hear that, you, that you're making that happen. And there are sort of, you know, uh, especially with some of the research I've been doing for, for my project, there's so many avenues to, you know, automating, it, mo- automating income and getting the teachings online that I think would really serve, you know, um, you know, the next stage of your path, as you were saying. So I want to start, uh, kind of wrapping things up. I have one big question and then I have a couple kind of wrap up questions for you. So we had discussed, and you've talked about this in, in, in a few ways, but I wanted you to talk about it a little more directly. Is this issue for you or not so much issue, but what you're, um, what is part of your sadhana at the moment, which is facing your own mortality. And so I'd love to hear kind of you talk about that, how the teachings are helping you, and also kind of the larger question maybe of how is yoga about death? Because you hear that a lot. I mean, people say that. I feel like sometimes you hear someone say that in a class, they kind of drop it as sort of a, a, a shock, um, you know, a, a big point that's supposed to kind of um, uh, shock someone or, or make it, there's some, some depth that's, that's associated with it, but it's never really unpacked, I find, when people mention it. So I'd love to hear you talk about that. Sure. Well, first, I'm, I'm still in the end stages. My own mom is 97 and uh, has been bedridden for a number of years and has suffered a certain kind of uh, dementia, you could say. So uh, my brother is there on site as the primary caregiver. So at a certain level, this has been an ongoing process of just observing in my own family, um, you know, deterioration um, of the body and the mind in a way where I'm happy that she's warm and protected and safe and stuff like that. But it's, it's a tragic thing to witness uh, the slow deterioration. So in some way that has prepared me um, or is, is preparing me um, of course, making funeral plans ahead of time, Mm -hmm. facing that kind of logistical, legal, financial stuff that, if you're willing to uh, do battle with the belly of the beast right now, rather than put it off till some other time when you think that somehow you'll be more ready to do that. So those are the kind of things where first you want to take care of that, I think, ahead of time. So it's not so much of a shock when it gets there. And then, of course, when you do that, for my mom, when I did that for my mom, it only makes me more aware of, well, what am I thinking about myself. So, of course, the guys in my men's group years ago said, all right, well, if you're true, if you're real, you know, do your will, you know, because once you do that, again, it's like another step of saying, I'm not living in a fantasy that I'm going to live forever. And one of the things you want to do is you want to start setting some parameters about, so what do you want to do with this? And what are you going to do with your money? And blah, blah, blah. So that brings it another step closer. Then one of my teaching devices has always been the obit, you know, write your own obit, 
which is, you know, it's, it, it's a further stage along of the question, knowing you're going to die, how do you choose to live? But your obit is the thing like, okay, what do you want said about you? Don't leave it to other people. And two things come up immediately. Part of what you're going to write is already true. And so to the extent that you could say you already have experienced or accomplished this, this, and this in your life, that means the rest of your life is kind of gravy, that you just should be celebrating and being in the joyful place of realization that I've done this in my life. This is how my life has been. I'm so happy that that's how it is. But then there might be other things about your obit that if you wanted that to be true, and it ain't true right now, well, you better get your ass in gear. And what do you got to do between now and then, since death is no respecter of ages and you have no idea when you're going to die? All you know that if you're like in your 50s or your 60s, yeah, you could say, oh, maybe I'll live to 100 or 120, right? You could. But chances are, at some point, you start saying, more of my life is behind me than ahead of me. Yeah. And so that gives you like a little... Uh, realization, I got to get it together, assuming that you know what it is you want to get together, which then kind of like morphs into another thing. Do you have dreams? Why don't you have dreams? What stopped you from using your imagination, which is another thing, of course, that elders are supposed to do, provide through their stories, increase of imagination to empower young people to step into what their dreams are. You know, there's one of those old statements that says, uh, the purpose of your dreams is to build sandcastles in the sky. But the, the purpose of reality is to put foundations underneath them. Right, right. So the older you get, you continue to minimize things that are possible and start to maximize things that are probable. Yeah. yeah. And so that's one thing that also helped, has helped me confront my own aging process. Uh, like I said, in the last year, I, for 45 years, I've been a freaking Iron Man in terms of my pranic energy and Shakti output and stuff like that. And I got hit with this disease about a year and a half ago. And uh, that really knocked me out and also made me see another step in the aging process, which forced me to learn to adapt. Mm -hmm. And that's another aspect of, you know, I mean, we joke about it when we say you get to a certain point, your body no longer does what it used to do. And then it's already, and then it's continuing, it's, it's starting to do things it never did before. Yeah, okay, so you have to learn to adapt. But of course, if you have an illness or something like that, that impacts, you know, how your daily life is, especially for somebody in a movement discipline, very, very humiliating um, to not be able to do some of the things I used to do, to ask for help yeah. Um, yeah. in a different way than I ever have before. But of course, it's all been growth producing because I've been able to find a way to make that continue, me being who I am. Because you end up being who you are no matter what your circumstances are, whether you're living in poverty or whether you're living high in the, high in the hog, whether you're surrounded by friends or you're alone, whether you're well or you're ill, it doesn't matter. The true you is going to come out because it's a transition state, so it's another ritual initiation. So I realize this is another one of those things. And, yeah, you know, maybe there's a book that was written a long time ago when good things happen when bad things happen to good people, right. and then you wonder, right. you know, is if you're, you're creating your life, why do I need this experience? Why did I create an experience like this? And it's, you know, <laughs> interesting to come up with, the only thing I could think of is to prepare me for all the loss I'm about to face. Mm. So the combination of the loss of my mom at some point and the 
changing in the demographic of the family when my brother doesn't have to be as the primary caregiver for her, changing relationship to New York City. Both girls are out of the house now in college, a loss of that aspect of the family. You know, you don't see them, you know, more than a few times a year. Uh, the potential of closing the yoga circle when my second daughter graduates school, uh, a new fork in the road between me and my wife in terms of reinventing where we are at this stage of our marriage. Um, so those all become changes. You can spin it with different different ways, if, in words if you want to, but they're transitions. And as I've already told you, every transition is an initiation. So... Each one is requiring a different focus, a different way of looking at things, a different kind of resources um, that I have to either find within myself or build a support system. Because one of the things you also learn from aging is one of the worst things for an older person is social isolation. Mm. You know, keeping to yourself and, uh, and not maintaining and bridging out to have shared things and do stuff with the community. I don't think that's going to happen in my, my case, but I'm very well aware of that. Um, so those are, those are all things that are going on in my life. And I think the, the products that I'm trying to do now is probably the last part of the obit for me, getting out all this knowledge that I've kind of garnered over decades and seeing if I can create a legacy. Um, I mean, I've already done it to a certain extent for Mr. Iyengar. I've made a number of therapeutic books in honor of the stuff that I've learned from him. Uh, I wish I would have, I don't know if I'd ever complete them, but I wish I would have been able to get them to him before he passed on, just to have an acknowledgement of like, you know, okay, I see what you're doing. And even if he would criticize, don't do this, do this, whatever. But um, it doesn't matter. The legacy is there for me. And then just adding, you know, the the MP3 stuff and making some essays, maybe some audio books. Uh, I have a cookbook that's in the back burner that I'm probably going to, you know, reignite. And so that's probably the last part is, you know, my, my legacy thing, you know, the... Um, and I'll finish this off because you got a couple more quick questions, and then I, I, I got to make the transition. Yeah. Um, w one of my um, other mentors, James Hillman, uh, once said this wonderful thing about lasting, leaving, and left. Mm. And that was his way of saying that you get to a certain stage of your life, usually your young adulthood, and like you try to make your mark, and you stay in a certain field, and you work it for a long period of time. And so there's a certain psychological set that you're in while you're lasting through the duration of that period. But then that thing starts to wind down or wrap up, whether you want to call it retirement or, you know, people now have lifestyles where there's a trajectory. You don't stay with the same company forever. You stay for four or five years and then it, you piggyback that to something else. And so at another point, you start to get ready to leave the thing that had lasted for so long because the motivation that got you from there to here in the lasting period is a different motivation get, that gets you from here to there in the next period. So you change a little bit your whole perspective about what's going on during the period where now you're getting ready to leave. And then the leaving period ends up in what's left. And that's the legacy part. Is there anything that you want behind you your gift, whether it's philanthropical, you leave money and you say, you know, make a red light here, make a park here, create a library, or whatever it is, your opus, whatever it is that you think uh, represents who you are and how in some way you'd like to share yourself when you're no longer personally there.
So that's also part of it for me. That's great. I'm really happy to hear that you're that you plan to leave that legacy because I do think that uh, that your teachings are so insightful. Um, and I and I it was really nice to hear you talk about your mom. And, and I have to say, I sympathize with that experience that you're going through because my grandma as well. Uh, I mean, she's moved past dementia now. She's at Alzheimer's. And that's, uh, it's such a, uh, a frustrating and, as you said, difficult process to have to go through to watch somebody really, you know, the, uh, the person that you, you were familiar with kind of, you know, b- become somewhat different. And, and it calls up, at least for me, it's called up a lot of kind of ethical questions of personhood and identity that, you know, obviously we don't have time to go into, but it's really kind of, it's, it's complicated and it's challenging for sure. Um, so, so the last, uh, couple of questions, the one is really quick and actually we've gone over it, uh, is, but maybe we can repeat what you have going on right now. So I'd love to hear uh, the website for yoga circle and also for your other website. Again, if you want to just repeat Dharma wraps.com, if you want to spell that maybe. Yeah, dharmaraps.com, D-H-A-R-M-A-R-A-P-S.com. Okay, perfect. And then it's yogacircle.com? Yogacircle.com is the main website for the school there and the special events and workshops that we have, the various yoga vacations coming up. I got one in Mexico and one in Italy next year. Oh, nice. Um, that's also more part of the uh, the long-range plan uh, when um, – my second daughter graduates in the spring of 2017. I've been putting pieces in place to be able to live in Europe for an extended period of time. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So this is one of the, you know, again, another extension of the obit part. I want to get Great. that done in my life. Yeah. Okay, and then the last question, uh, Gabrielle, is, uh, is I, I've created a, I'm creating, uh, well, it's it's in its first edition, but I'm creating a resource. It's kind of an open source resource for people. It's a list of of yogic and wisdom texts that I share with the audience on Five Tattvas, and I'm, I'm and I ask each interviewee if they would mind sharing one or two books that have really been transformative for them, or they think is a, would be a really useful resource for other people who are who are interested in kind of exploring more. So, do you have a, a book or two that you could recommend? Oh, more than that. This is where my academic uh, life, right. you know, is really just so I'll roll this out really quickly. First of all, for people who really want a great hit of yoga bhakti and understand the devotional aspect and the magic connected with the implication of what a realized being is, first I would start them off with Spiritual Autobiography of a Yogi yes. by Paramahansa yes. Yogananda, mm-hmm. and then The Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna by M. Absolutely the best book uh, about a living saint and uh, what it is to have somebody who's really absorbed in God consciousness. Um, in terms of spirituality, I think that The Perennial Philosophy by Aldous Huxley is one of the most articulate books ever written about cross-cultural mysticism. I think that Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism mm-hmm. by Chugyam Chungpa he was the first teacher to talk about the bullshit on the spiritual path yeah. and the naivete and gullibility of most Western students who have no idea what Eastern philosophy is all about but just want to buy something because they don't like what they learned from the West. I think that's a fantastic book. The Sufis by Idris Shah makes people realize much more how the Islamic tradition and the Sufis have played a part in Western history. Uh, let's see. Women Who Run With the Wolves by Clarissa Pinkola Estes as a primer for women's mythological uh, tales and fairy tales. 
Men in the Water of Life by Michael Mead does the same thing for men's work. Uh, let's stop there. That's amazing. There's like 75% of those books I've never even heard of, so thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I geek out over new books to read. Uh, so this has been a fantastic, Gabriel. Thank you so much for offering your time to talk to me. Uh, I'd love to do this again with you sometime soon, and we can talk about some of the other things you brought up, especially postponement and maybe myths, because I know that you, you feel strongly about the loss of myths. So that would be a, a cool topic to explore together someday. Sure. Let me know if there's a way that uh, we can link uh, this podcast to what somebody could do. Uh, connect to in the yoga circle oh yeah absolutely I'd love part of this to be aware uh, available to people that would really be uh, helpful yeah and absolutely. feel free at any other time to like you know consider me a consultant or somebody to run stuff by it'd be an honor to help uh, continue uh, supporting you as you pursue your path Thank you so much, Gabriel. And uh, yeah, I would actually love, we can talk some other time, but I would love to talk to you about some contributing some of your writing maybe to to the project, if you'd be interested. Sure, I would. Now listen, I'm coming to Kula again. Um, the week before Thanksgiving, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. What are the dates for that? November 20th, 21st, 22nd. Wonderful. All right, I'll, I'll put the, a shout out and hopefully people who listen to this can also come to that. That's Kula Yoga Project in Williamsburg. Uh, Friday and Saturday, Sunday in Williamsburg, Saturday in Tribeca. Awesome. Thank you so much, Gabriel. Have a, a wonderful class later. You too. Good luck, man. Pleasure talking to you. Same here. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Gabriel Halpern. If you'd like to get your hands on some of his exceptional Dharma talks, and I can personally recommend them myself as they are really how I first connected with Gabriel as a teacher, you'll find those at dharmaraps.com. As Gabriel mentioned, that's D-H-A-R-M-A-R-A-P-S.com. And also, if you want to see what's happening at Gabriel's studio in Chicago and to find out more about his retreats, go to yogacircle.com, yoga, Y-O-G-A. A C I R C L E dot com.